to everybody listening on Spotify and about 8,000 different podcast apps. Thanks to Anchor.fm. They're finally coming through with us. This is On the Farm, a podcast dedicated to covering major and minor league baseball. I'm your host, Matt Kovitz, and joining me, as always, is Sam Shapiro. Sam, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Matt. It's a beautiful October afternoon. We had a great week of baseball uh, in the books. We've got some more great stuff coming up. And as always, uh, it's 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 such a pleasure to be able to uh, be chatting about it with you. I really appreciate that. It was a great week for baseball games on the field. However, two weeks in a row, we have to start off on a somber note. Unfortunately, some baseball legends have been passing away in this hellscape of a year that doesn't seem to end. But Whitey Ford, the iconic New York Yankee chairman of the board, passed away at the age of 91. For his on-field accomplishments, he had he was a six-time World Series champion, a 10-time All-Star, and simply one of the best left-handed pitchers ever. More the bridge between the dominant 50s and the struggling 60s Yankees teams. And of course, his iconic number 16 retired at Monument Park. Yankees lost a legend today on the eve of Game 5. So very upsetting. He had been in ill health the last few years, always horrific, especially with Bob Gibson and Lou Brock, Tom Seaver, just to name a few of the players that we've lost in the last few months, just does not seem to be getting any better. Yeah, 2020 truly has not been a good year to us baseball fans. Whitey Ford lived a very, very long life. I believe he was in his 90s when he passed. 91. Um, 91. Holy smokes. Um, but I think one thing growing up in a, in a Yankees household that I remember is even in his uh, elder years, uh, he stayed very connected to the franchise. They'd, you know, bring him out there for old timers day. And I think that uh, that just kind of showed how much he meant to that franchise. You know, as you mentioned, uh, there's a lot of Yankee history uh, packed into that career and uh, clearly a, a very big loss for, uh, for the, for the Yankees family and for the freaking of baseball as a whole. Rest in peace, Whitey, indeed. Now on to some front office shakeups in the National League. We will start with the Philadelphia Phillies, Matt Quintack, their GM and president, not returning to the team. Of course, he took over prior to the 2016 season and had expectations of playoffs in mind, especially for the last two years, signing guys like Bryce Harper, getting JT Realmuto, getting Andrew McCutcheon, Zach Wheeler, having a dominant presence in Aaron Nola. Just not enough for this team to ever get going. They thought Gabe Kapler was the issue. They jettisoned him to San Francisco after letting him go. Uh, below 500 year as well this season with Joe Girardi. What is going on in Philadelphia? This seems like this is going to be an eternal rebuild. And I'm not saying blow it all up again, but they need to do something to get some fresh energy and some fresh ideas into this organization. Yeah, I think that this really boils down to the results on the field. I can't really poke too many holes in how Clintac constructed the team. And I think that one one thing that really uh, speaks to that is the scuttlebutt that Ned Rice, one of the uh, assistant GMs who took over an interim role, yeah, is one of the favorites to, to keep the job. And uh, this kind of goes to show that the overall philosophy in that uh, in that front office isn't really going to be changing much going forward. Um, and I think that, well, there, this was a very disappointing season for the Phillies. Uh, a lot of it really can just be boiled down to that horrific bullpen, which experienced many meltdowns. Uh, I, I guess some of it does fall on his shoulders in terms of uh, many of these acquisitions uh, not panning out at all. Uh, David Phelps uh, kind of fell way back down to earth once he put on a Phillies jersey. Uh, that, red, that Red Sox trade, which uh, losing out on Workman and Hembry was something I was a little miffed about, but both of them were terribly ineffective after that trade was made. You know, the, the, the funny thing, and we joked about this, was David Hale was yet another pickup uh, for them at the deadline. Kind of 
of an afterthought compared to some of those moves. Uh, much uh, less of a big name than any of the other bullpen acquisitions, but he was the only one who gave them consistent innings. And so I think that if it's something that minute and targeted, I, I really don't think that falls 100% on, on his shoulders. There's also the question of uh, Girardi's bullpen management, which I know had a little bit of controversy attached to it when he was uh, back up in the Bronx. Um, but I, I don't think that the future is 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 that dim for this Phillies team. Al Bohm coming up and absolutely mashing in his in his first year in the lineup. Uh, they're starting to put him in the middle of the order towards the end of the season, and I think that his his development there is a great sign. If Bryce Harper can kind of up the consistency a little and not you know, go through these uh, midseason slumps, he's been known to hit. This is this this division is going to be very competitive in the years to come, uh, and so I think that while it does look like they're just going to be going in-house for, uh, for contacts replacement, uh, whoever they do hire, they're going to have, uh, they're, they're going to have things to work with. That's the problem though. There were high expectations. There was money spent on the team. It, at this point, you just, someone has to be the fall guy and it starts up at the top. They will be a team to watch because they have all that high quality talent on their payroll. They're never going to be truly out of it. This is not the dark days of the 2013 to the 17 Phillies, but they need to get out of that purgatory as well. And another interesting move, Dick Williams, the GM and also the president of baseball operations for the Cincinnati Reds, leaving the team after working with the organization for 15 years. He cited he wants to be spend more time with his family. He's going to go into his family business. He was on the road for 180 games a year. That's not sustainable. That being said, an interesting move because the Reds were a team that was on the way up as evidenced by their playoff appearance this year only went 31 and 29, but they had a lot of the pieces in place, especially in that great rotation to stick around for a few years in a very muddy NL central weird that he's leaving at this moment, but he was the architect. He had seen them with highs and lows in the early 2010s. They were a playoff team in three out of four years and then through, went through a pretty lengthy rebuild themselves. So that'll be it for Dick Williams. The Reds are going to have someone new as well. Yeah, and I think that's another situation where there will be a lot of a lot of fun pieces to play with. Uh, obviously, Trevor Bauer's situation is very much up in the air, but uh, you're probably going to get another year of Nick Cast uh, Castellanos. He's not going to be uh, testing the market. You have young guys like Aristides Aquino, who, although he had a bit of an off year this year, the power potential is incredibly exciting. Um, there's always the question of whether or not Nick Senzel can finally turn around and live up to expectations. You've got Jonathan India in the upper minors. And we mentioned him briefly uh, a couple weeks ago. Tyler Stevenson really was uh, a great surprise at the plate in the limited time he got that walk off in what I think is second or uh, it was like second or third game. You know, you can just you can just tell the ball comes a little differently off his bat. Um, and so if they can get their lineup straightened out, and they're still obviously gonna have guys like Castillo, uh, Sonny Gray, Tyler Mall. You know, this 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 is a team that could easily uh, get up to where the, the Cubs have been for the last few seasons and get that kind of consistency going. We will move to the on field on the field results now. What'd you think of this week of division series play? I was very excited. I was uh, glued to the TV, especially at night. It's been appointment viewing, especially since I'm a Yankees fan, but I've been very happy with how the product has turned out. A lot of great games so far. Agreed. Uh, unfortunately, uh, my, uh, my cable setup doesn't involve TBS, so... Oh, I've, not, no. I've not been able to watch what's arguably been the most exciting series. Uh, I think there's been fantastic baseball all around, even in the series that had sweeps with the, this Dodgers Padres series. I know I'm getting a little bit out of order here. We'll go more in depth as we go down the line. That was, it, it was a sweep. But a lot of the games were you know, real back and forth of affairs, a lot of intrigue, you know, teams adding runs in the later innings, even with the, the Braves and the Marlins, uh, two very exciting young lineups, young pitching staffs. So really enjoy 
enjoyable to watch, even if you weren't getting that kind of back and forth in, in the results column. Let's take it to the most exciting series, Yankees and the Rays. We did say our, our predictions so far can be two for four because we were uh, we agreed on every single series. A couple of them did not look great, and we'll get to those. But this one still has a chance of happening. We said Yankees in five. Currently tied two to two as of this recording. Game one, Yankees won nine to three. The offense continued to crush. They got to Blake Snell. He gave up four runs over five. And they also had a five-run output in the ninth inning. Garrett Cole had a quality start, six innings only three runs allowed. Very good Yankees when they looked the part of an offensive contender. The next two days, not as well, not doing as well. Uh, Randy Rosarena hit a, another home run. That was his second in two nights. Davey Garcia started. Jay Happ was up after three pitches. It was an interesting move, and I want to get your thoughts on it after we recap this. Happ was the bolt guy for Garcia's opener, and it did not go well. Went two and two-thirds, gave up four runs, and this game was over largely because of his performance. Garcia did give up a home run to Mr. Rice Aroni himself, but looked like he was going to get a bit more run. And I did think that would possibly happen in game four. Did not expect it in game two. Masahiro Tanaka was pushed back. This was a true 2020 game and an abundant amount of strikeouts, 18 for the Yankees. Home runs up plenty as well. Please never do that again, Yankees. I know this was a group consultation effort. Phil Nevin was the one who was trying to get Hap on board. Didn't It seemed like there was some resistance. Let's, let's scrap that. Let's leave that to the Rays for now. Game three, Tanaka's pitching dominance in the middle innings for the Rays. They chased Tanaka and then got to Chad Green. A Kevin Kiermeyer homer. When Kiermeyer, who has a negative launch angle, is hitting three-run bombs, that's when you know it's not your night. And a third straight for Randy Arozarena. I don't want to hear his name again. The Yandy Diaz, Brandon Lau, Arozarena. One, two, three. This was not a team two years ago. They were not on the roster. And here they come just tearing everything up. The Rays and the Cardinals are similar to me. And they'll just find random value in strange places. It works because Rosarena and Jose Martinez came for Matthew Libertor in a trade with the Cardinals. But like, wow, it's ridiculous at this point. Eight to four. And game four, the Yankees did exactly what they needed. Jordan Montgomery did exactly what he was asked. He went four innings, gave up one earned run, and then went to the bullpen. Ryan Thompson was the opener for the Rays. Gleyber Torres homered, Luke Voigt homered, Yankees up 5-1, a dominant bullpen performance. What do we think has gone on so far? Has there been anything that's caught your eye, aside from our random back-and-forth chats about Mr. Randy? 2-2, two two, we have Garrett Cole on three days left, rest versus Tyler Glass now. Struck out 10 in his first start, but that was on Tuesday. And I'm sure Blake Snell is going to be available as well. What are your predictions for what goes on in the series? So we can either praise them or make fun of them in a week. I mean, I think that it starts and ends with Garrett Cole, arguably the best pitcher in the AL, not named Shane Bieber this past year. I think he's really going to be hoping for, you know, six, seven strong innings. Then you get your, um, you get your Britain Chapman bridge. I hesitate to say who's going to be in that seventh inning spot because that was out of Vino all year until he had that, uh, that, that September meltdown. He's um, out of the circle of trust though. He did better and Britain did go too. So he went one and two thirds. It's going to be weird to find a guy. They need Garrett Cole to go like 13 innings tonight. Yeah. This also might be one of those times where they, where they bring Chapman out for a multi-inning save. He's showing he's capable of doing that. I think that was uh, that happened in the wild card series too, did it not? It did, and he went an inning and a third last night as well. So he's right. what he's less comfortable with it, but they're saying tough. You got to do it. Yeah. Kind of to your point earlier, I know you're not going to like this, but the fact that there are just so many random pieces uh, on this race team make them really fun to watch, um, and it just goes to the test. Uh, it's a testament to the importance of having a strong front office, a strong player development team, a strong scouting department that you're able to 
you know, find these guys and add them into, uh, add them into your trades as, you know, secondary pieces or throw-ins. Um, I had forgotten that it was the, the Liberator Dios. So it, it appears that the Cardinals gave up the surprise hero of the postseason to own the Lib. Wow. That was <laughs> yeah. great. Good job. I remember <laughs> you, you said, you, you said his name and I was sitting on that for like a solid two and a half minutes, hoping I, it would land. I'm glad you saved it for this. That's fantastic. Oh yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I think I think that uh, in terms of uh, the the game two pitching debacle, uh, we actually discussed this back in our uh, air radio days. Some to this effect happened 2017, I want to say. Craig Council uh, for the Brewers, uh, he tried to pull something like this. It might it might have been 2018. I'm this not, was I'm the 2018 sure. NLCS game against the Dodgers, yeah. correct? With uh, it was. Wade Miley and Brandon Woodruff. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. I was I was I was back visiting with uh, you and Mr. Steele. Shout out to Jakey Jake. But I hear hear my thoughts on this. I think it can be a very effective tactic, and it's good gamesmanship if you can execute it correctly. Um, and that requires you know a lot of things that probably I'm not even qualified to opine on. You know, making sure that you have the that you have the buy in from whoever's coming up as your um, as your as your as your fallback guy. Uh, make, making sure that the previous games in the series go according to plan, so that you have you know the ability to effectively deploy this. Um, I, I would imagine there's like a psychological thing to it too, where you know not only this the this, this, this starter, but the guy who's coming in after three batters, you know, both have to be acclimated to being in this very weird situation. And obviously with a guy like Yarborough for the Rays, where his entire role the past two years has been, you know, coming in after the opener gets the the order, you know, once, you know, obviously he's acclimated to that. He's able to come in in the second or third inning and then go do his thing for uh, for five or six. Um, but that's a, that, that takes a different mindset and it's a different kind of preparation. And, uh, you know, now that we're thinking about this and talking it out, it's a little funky to ask a guy to do this for the first time in October, for the first time all year. For the first time in his career, really. And True. I cannot, I, I, this was very well thought out. I understand, but, and this was going to be inevitable and it will likely be inevitable in a championship series should they advance because the pitching depth is really not there. It's going to occur. I didn't think it would happen so quickly. And they're going to have to possibly think of something. Cole can't give them a lot today. I'm not saying open use Cole as an opener. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. But he's going to be on short rest. I don't know what his leash is. He is the ace. I'm assuming he's going to go and give as much as he can. But say they move on, they're going to have to work on every other strategy possible to make sure that he's well rested for a championship series and a World Series. So it may be more in fashion in the next couple of games, not just game five. Now, I also want to talk about the rise of Kyle Higashioka. He has been a very great catcher and a very good hitter throughout this series. He is getting a lot more run. He is Garrett Cole's personal catcher. What does that mean for Gary Sanchez, who only got in in game two and has been absent the rest of the series? And it's not like you could just use him as the first pinch hitter off the bench because that means Higashioka is going to be gone and they don't have any other catchers on the roster. Eric Kratz is not there. What does this mean for Gary's future in New York? You know, I saw someone on Twitter the other night, I'm forgetting who it is, so I can't give them credit, but they said something to the effect of how Sanchez is probably going to end up hitting 30 home runs in another uniform next year. Oh, of course. While, 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 while Aaron Boone will be talking about how the Higashioka Jason Castro platoon does all the things that don't show up in the box score. Um, mm, so, <laughs> so um, I, I, I think that with what's been going on with Sanchez this year, this is not the new normal for him. I don't think obviously an atrocious year at the plate, probably one of the worst in recent memory for a major league getting regular time. But 
I don't think this is the end all be all of, of who he is as a player. Obviously the defense was never that great to begin with. And now the rogues really come out from under him. But even though his, 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 his batting average is uh, lower than mine was in little league. And that's saying something the, the, the power was still there and you would see it in certain spots throughout the year. That said, given everything that's transpired, I wouldn't blame the Yankees for cutting ties. Uh, I don't think that I would go all in on Higashioka as an everyday catcher. Um, he's shown that he can uh, hit at an above average level for a backup. He gives you good defense. He calls a good game. But I don't think he can quite make the Austin Romine jump yet. And even with that, Romine in his uh, new Detroit Tigers uniform uh, was a much different hitter during uh, this September than he was uh, in the previous month. So uh, two months, excuse me. Um, So I think that for the Yankees, uh, what you really have to hope for is you can get a guy like Castro, preferably someone a little higher up on the the food chain in the offseason this year, and really just throw all you have at developing Austin Wells and making sure that he's able to be in the majors as soon as possible. It might be worth it though, to just keep Sanchez around, but how many more chances he's going to get? Imagine you told yourself in 2016 that four years later, a very good guitar player would be starting over Gary Sanchez in the the American league division series in San Diego, California, where there are cardboard cutouts in the stands. Would you just be checked into the closest facility? I would, I would, I would probably ask anyone who told me that, uh, what they were on and can I please have some, it must, it must be a great trip. Going back to your literally comment, were you above or below the Mendoza line? Um, so I was, I was below for three out of four years. Okay. Um, but I, I, I think that I'm, I, you know, it's, it's tough to remember exact numbers. Uh, I think I was a little better than, uh, than 147. Not very hard to do. So I commend you for that. <laughs> Moving on to the second division series in the American League. We did not expect this, did we? We said Oakland Athletics are going to win this confidently. The Houston Astros have a good team, but not good enough. Wow. That we did hate, not we hate work. to see it. We really do hate to see this. Game one, 10 to five. The A's were actually up three to nothing in this one. That's going to be a trend. They led in every single game and only won one of those. Carlos Correa and the rest of the office turned this one into a laugher. There was a huge Marcus Simeon error that lets you four unearned runs on J.B. Wendelkin's ledger, 10 to five. Game two, Chris Davis home run. They're up again. Doesn't matter. Framber Valdez went seven strong, striking out multiple guys. I want to say four or five, gave up only two runs, five to two. The The A's are on the brink of elimination. They hang around in game three. There was an impassioned speech by Ramon Laureano before the game, and the A's power really paid off. Tanya Lestella, Marcana, Simeon, and Matt Olson homered early on in the game, but the Astros still took a 7-4 lead. It took it a Chad Pinder bomb to tie it up, and then a Sean Murphy and Pinder sack fly combination to give the A's the deciding runs. Liam Hendricks was great. The meltdown of last week was a distant memory. He went three scoreless innings. Game four, however, the Laureano, the motivator, three-run home run to open the scoring. He hit two on the day, actually. Just no match for Michael Brantley, Carlos Correa, and the rest of the team. This got real ugly. At 11-6, to the Houston Astros will be in the American League Championship Series for the fourth straight season. They're not cheating anymore. What is going on? Why do they have to do this? The offense is too good and can wake up at any moment. Why? Well, we said last time, you know, these are skilled players, regardless of the trash can banning, uh, banging, excuse me. And, you know, they've shown they've been capable of this for a while. And I think that that's part of what plays into it is that they've been here before. This is uh, an Astros team that's gone deep into the playoffs uh, for much of uh, the past half uh, of the decade. 
Um, you know, so being in these situations is not new to them producing, um, when their team absolutely needs them to come through in order to stay alive, you know, in these, in, in these high pressure, high tension series, uh, that's something that, uh, comes easily to a, to a George Springer or a Carlos Correa or a Michael Brantley. And also, I think that for, for, for those guys, namely Correa or, or Springer, they're probably overall of just like a higher caliber than a lot of, you know, guys in the, in the A's lineup skill wise. This was an A's team that did not have Matt Chapman, um, arguably its best offensive and defensive player in the lineup. Um, Matt no, Olson, no disrespect to Jake Lamb and Tommy Lestella, but it's very hard to replicate that on defense. And I noticed <laughs> a couple of times there are plays that Chapman would have made that these two just could not. Right. And obviously Matt Olson, uh, outstanding power, you know, real solid cleanup hitter, but you can't expect him to be the only real offensive leader on this team, especially when you're going up against a real Huguenot like the Astros lineup. Uh, and I think that's also for the Astros. We talked about their playoff experience and you know, their veteran leadership, but uh, for the most part, you had, you know, your Christian Javier's and your Anoli Paredes is really stepping up uh, when their team needed them and not getting too, too big for the moment. Um, and so I think that's kind of the story of uh, this year's Astros team. It's the fire and ice of uh, the solid veterans and these rookies who not a lot of people who don't follow uh, player development closely had, had, had heard of, but they're, they're, they're making the most of this opportunity. And while I still don't see this Astros team advancing to the World Series, of course, now that I said that they probably will, you know, this is encouraging if you're, if you're in that front office. And if you're a member of the Open Athletics, what's going on there? It's, you got to, at this, at this point, you can get there. You're not moving on. It's been like that since 2006. That's the last time they even made it past the first round. I know they beat the White Sox. Great. They won their exercise, those demons. This is a team that is consistently good, mostly year in and year out. They really just need to take the next step. And that may come with spending more money on players, but that's an organizational an ownership-based uh, philosophy where Billy Bean has to work with what he has budget-wise. And Moneyball's great. You need a bit more money to ball. Yeah, there's the, there's the rub right there. When you look at teams that have had success with a primarily analytics-based approach, the two that really jump out to me uh, this century are, uh, are Boston and then the Cubs. Those are, those are teams where obviously they're very forward-thinking with analytics and sabermetrics, but they have a lot of cash and they're able to bring in marquee free agents um, and you know, have those, you know, those high-priced assets you know, blended in with the overall analytics-based philosophy. And that's something that's just, I don't think, ever going to be the case in Oakland. And this, to me, seems like you know, it, it, it's, it sucks to... To, to come out and say it, uh, apologies to Matty Mendoza if you're listening, but this kind of feels like the ceiling. I'm sure he's going to be very upset to hear that. He, Mr. The biggest Marcus Simeon proponent in all of recorded human history besides maybe Marcus Simeon's mother. I am still big mad about that Marcus uh, Simeon Mookie Betts comparison. I was sitting there lis listening to, when, to, your, to your guys' uh, show, which you know, I did regularly and you know, always enjoyed. You two did a great job. You know, I, when, when that was happening, I was, I was thinking to myself, you know, this is what happens when you graduate, Sam. <laughs> you should have stuck around for a fifth and sixth year, just failed out a couple times. And then you would have been around on the radio. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that my bank account, my parents' bank account would have appreciated that very much. <laughs> <laughs> and in this series, the Astros saw 12 of the 13 rostered athletics pitchers. The one they didn't face, Mike Fires, did not get into a single inning. Of this one. We will move into the National League. We got this one incorrect. Unfortunately, we were riding the fishy wave 
The Atlanta Braves are just too good for these Miami Marlins. Four years ago, another hypothetical scenario. You are told that Travis Darno is the cleanup hitter of the Atlanta Braves. What do you think the Atlanta Braves record is in 2020? I would say probably 95 losses, if not a few more. Not the case here. The Travis Darno train stops for nobody. Game one, Miami had a 4-1 lead over the Braves. Darno had a go-ahead home run to make it a 74 game. Rough start by both Sandy Alcantara and Max Fried, but the Braves do move on 9-5. Game two, Ian Anderson, 5-2, scoreless innings pitched with eight strikeouts. The only offense on the day, Dansby Swanson and Travis Darno again with big home runs. And then in game three, the offense had cratered for the Miami Marlins over very fast. Kyle Wright, fantastic. Two straight great starts from the Braves. Sixth of chance, Sanchez struggled very early. The familiarity here may have been his undoing because as they were talking about on the broadcast, he had only seen two teams multiple times over the course of this season. And they were Atlanta and they were Washington. In game one against both of those teams, he was great. In game two, he struggled. Now he gets a third opportunity against the Braves and it seemed like they had the book out on him. Hit very hard. And the Atlanta Braves, for the first time since 2001, not only win a series, make it to the NLCS. For Miami, take what you can get. This was a very rough and challenging season, and it's honestly a miracle that they were here. Don Mattingly has to be the manager of the year. With these Braves, they did all of this, 18 runs in three games, without Freddie Freeman really contributing anything at all. He's had some great defensive showings, but nothing on offense. Acuna, Ozuna, Swanson, Darno, even Austin Riley at the nine spot. Ozzie Albies. Ozzie Albies, of course. This is a very good team, and they're going to be a tough out for the Dodgers. What do we think about this team, how they did in the series, and what do you think their chances are coming up against a very juggernaut, juggernaut-like Los Angeles team? Well, one number I think is absolutely remarkable is this Braves team has played five games so far this postseason, and they've given up five runs over the course of those five games. Um, You're right. Four shutouts. Four shutouts. We don't have uh, we don't have any interest to look this up for us right now, but I would imagine that's, if not a record, close to it. And I think that I have to eat a little bit of crow for suggesting that there could be some arms kind of in the uh, you know front end of the bullpen that might not be able to replicate their incredible numbers of this uh, of this short and regular season. They're holding up great. Um, start the starting pitching. Uh, Ian Anderson as a rookie, third overall pick just a couple of years ago, throwing like a, like a like a five to ten year veteran out there, no fear in his eyes. Even Kyle Wright in Game Three, who had been atrocious in the action he saw the past few months really got it together. And, you know, I still don't see any, any team anywhere losing to the Dodgers. It's going to be one for the record books. It'll be, it'll be a really solid series. I'm very excited. This bullpen that was due for regressions because of how good they were doing. Will Smith, Shane Green, even guys like Jacob Webb are contributing right now. Firing on all cylinders with that pitching staff, but they do have a very tough test. The San Diego Padres were the hottest team going in, the most exciting team going into this division series, and Los Angeles just promptly undid them. Game one, uh, Mike Clevenger going up against Walker Bueller. Clevenger was not long for this one. He was activated off of the injured list and placed onto the roster. He was dealing with a combination of elbow and biceps tendonitis. This is going to be a theme for this Padres rotation because Denelson Lamette once again gone with a biceps injury of his own. He did not make it. Clevenger looked good for the first 10 or so pitches of the game. 
really, really struggled afterwards, had a huge velocity dip, was only hovering around the the uh, low 90s with his fastball towards the end, only made it an inning before he had to leave the roster yet again. Uh, Padres did have the lead, but a Corey Seager home run in the bottom of the sixth gave the Dodgers the uh, victory. They never looked back after that. The Dodgers' depth is just way too much to compete with. Bueller went four innings again, struck out eight again. The bullpen is just too, too scary. And guys like Dustin May, who contributed in game one, also would be used later on in this series. Game two, a fantastic one. The game of the postseason so far, fireworks all night. This one was a 4-1 to Los Angeles lead. And then back-to-back home runs by Manny Machado and Eric Hosmer tightened the lead to one. Machado threw his bat like a projectile missile and just chucked it for a bat flip. And it was exciting. Six to three Dodgers after seven. Play of the postseason. Cody Bellinger robbing Fernando Tatis Jr. And following Brewster Gratterall's celebration, Manny Machado himself was the arbiter of fun. After I just said he projectile launched his bat, was yelling at Gratterall for not celebrating the right way. Rules for thee and not for me. Two runs off of Kenley Jansen in the ninth inning made this one a very close one. Six to five. Joe Kelly had to come in and get the save. And in game three, another laugher. 12 to three, over very fast. Dustin May didn't have to do much. He was the opener. And he got out of this 12 to three Dodgers win. San Diego, nothing but positives. They're going to be here. They need a bit more pitching depth. In a normal season, one would hope that their top two guys are not down uh, in Clevenger and Lamette. That's You're not going to go very far, unfortunately, when that's the case. I'm very happy with them. I'm sure they should be happy with themselves. The Dodgers, once again, as we said last week, the self is the only thing stopping them. They're a very good team. Is Kenley Jansen trustworthy right now? He has had a very rough couple of weeks, and he couldn't get out of the inning. They had to go to Cy Kelly. Wow. This is a staple of the bullpen. Uh, hundreds of saves racked up. What are they going to do? Because Dave Roberts would not commit to is, is Jansen the closer in a set and designated role. They might have to do some mixing and matching, which is going to be fine considering their depth, but not at all what you want to see, especially when these games are going to be very, very close. No, I agree that obviously you want your all-star closure to be pitching like an all-star closer, but just looking at the depth they have in this bullpen, Kelly, obviously, Gratterall has been great as a rookie. Uh, Dylan Floro always gives you solid innings. Um, you know, Kalarik as their lefty guy, and Victor Gonzalez coming from nowhere out of the Mexican League. You know, I'm just listing guys off, but they have all been, you know, elite or close to elite levers, you know, throughout various points this year. As a unit, um, I say it's one of the best in the game. And so, you know, having to, you know, make things a little more committee-based, for most teams would be an issue, but I think this Dodgers squad just has so much depth that uh, they'd be able to weather something like that. And looking at how electric this offense has been five runs, six runs and 12 runs against the Padre, a Padres team. That's, you know, they're, they're, they really weren't, they really weren't slouches on the pitching side of things. Um, if you have guys like you, Will Smith, towards the bottom of the order, really uh, hitting their weight, then I think that you, you take a lot of pressure off of this bullpen. Going to be a great series. I Gun to your head, Dodgers, Braves, what do you have? I'm sure you have no one stopping the Dodgers, but what is the game length? How long is this going to be? Is it a sweep? Is it more contested? I'm going to say Dodgers and six. That's a good, that'll be watchable. That'll be great. I don't think they're going to dominate their way through this like they did San Diego, but they're just a much more talented team. Didn't even talk about Clayton Kershaw in game two, just doing Clayton Kershaw things. Quality start, gave up three runs over six. There are a lot of fans who don't believe in Kershaw's ability to be clutch, quote unquote, in the postseason, hoping to exercise these demons. He's had two very good starts. That is it for the major league front on this episode. We will go down onto the farm 
and also into Washington, D.C., where the Supreme Court denied Major League Baseball's request to dismiss a lawsuit that was seeking increased minor league wages. This case, Senny versus the Royals, was filed in 2014 on behalf of Aaron Senny. In it, he is asking for much more money. Some players earn less than $5,000 in a season on the lower levels. And even at AAA, if you don't have that major league experience, it can only be at $700 a week. And that is certainly low as compared to the gaudy salaries and the gaudy benefits that a major league player gets just for being on the roster for one day. You uh, get lifetime insurance benefits. Now, big disparity in between minors and majors. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit allowed the lawsuit to proceed as a class action. This was in August of 2019. Former players are seeking back pay, and this would be players from California, Arizona, and Florida. And what's interesting about these latter two states, obviously spring training sites, players are not paid for spring training. That's including major leaguers as well. So they're hoping for at least a bit more leniency and flexibility to get more money on the major league side as well. In this particular instance, since a lot of those guys make it to camp, get sent down, and then are never seen again, it happens to a lot of them. They'd like to be earned, like to be making more money for their time in February and March away from their family and training. God forbid you get injured during that time. You're not really getting as much help as you possibly could. In 2018, the Save America's Pastime Act stripped minor leaguers of minimum wage protection. A lot of criticism from players on the farm, from although organizations are much more on board with it because, of course, not involving much payment. This lawsuit is going to resume in a few months, but the Supreme Court has been discussing it. What are your thoughts on where this is going? Is there a long road ahead for this case helping out minor leaguers? Where do you think the advantage lies right now? Sure. Well, just to preface this, uh, my worst grade of law school so far has been civil procedure. So you know, I don't think I'm you know, much of an authority on this. But in general, yeah, there, there, there is a long road ahead because what what just happened here was it was it was fully procedural. This was kind of in, in layman's terms, a delay tactic that Major League Baseball wanted to wanted to use to you know, muddy up the process a bit uh, to talk briefly about class actions. So according to the, the federal rules of civil procedure, which govern, you know, cases filed in, in, uh, in, in civil, uh, civil cases filed in, in federal courts like this one, there are a couple, there are, there are four requirements that you have to hit to be able to file a class action suit on behalf of a large class of people. Uh, do you want, do you want, do you want me to go into those, Matt, or just, you know, I think you should, because you're speaking to someone who knows very little about the Sure. So essentially, to the, to the bone. Sure. So essentially, um, there, 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 there are a few things. First, your class has to be the requisite size that bringing in individual people as them their individual selves is is you know is is, is not practical. And so basically, one one of the things you can do um, if you're filing a lawsuit that implicates other people's interests, you can you can you can you can do what's called joinder, where you can you know bring in another another individual party but you know for something like this where you have many many of these individual minor leaguers seeking their back pay you know you're not you're not going to have you know however many individuals uh, there are on the dock i don't know the number but you know since the class got certified i would imagine it's very large they are seeking to make it grow into the thousands though they're not at that level right quite yet. right and so you can't you, you can't have a lawsuit with like a thousand individuals you know on the on the docket or on the on the on the caption of the case next there have to be there have there has to be a common legal interest a common question of law to everyone in the class so you have to establish that you know whatever legal redress you're seeking 
that it applies to everyone you're bringing in, not just yourself as, as the lead plaintiff, as the lead person who's, who's taking the initiative to file it themselves. Third, you need to make sure that uh, your, your name party, in this case, Mr. Senny, um, that what he's seeking is kind of typical of what the other members of, of the proposed class are seeking, that his, you know, his injury is similar to theirs and that the relief that would make him whole is similar to theirs. And lastly, you have to ensure that um, the, the, the named party is going to fairly and adequately represent the interests of everyone else in the class. So this is basically a look at whether or not they have the ability to you know, ensure competent representation that, you know, they can craft a legal strategy that's going to take care of everyone in the class, not just themselves as, you know, the named plaintiff or the lead plaintiff. And basically what happened, you know, I haven't read the Ninth Circuit's decision yet, is they basically thought, they basically felt that, okay, Senny hit, he checked all those boxes um, and it's fine for this to proceed as a class action. Uh, and now we can look at this, you know, on the merits of what he's actually arguing. And what happened is Major League Baseball appealed to the Supreme Court. And rather than look into this class certification themselves, the Supreme Court just said, nope, Ninth Circuit had it right. They were correct in giving Senny this class certification. And now the lower court can go ahead and start looking at Senny's arguments themselves and determining whether or not the members of this class are entitled to their back pay and to their relief. So clearly you pay attention in class. This is what this whole lesson has taught me. I also clearly know how to look up uh, basic explainers of this stuff on the internet, but let's go with that too. Sure. But regardless of whether the which way the case shakes out, this has to be considered a big win for minor league baseball, correct? Oh, yeah, because this means now that they're actually getting to present the real meat of you know what they're arguing, what they're looking for. And like I said, this was a procedural tactic by MLB to kind of delay them from getting to this stage of the litigation. And now they've, they've, they've been able to clear this hurdle. And now if Major League Baseball you know, wants to stop them, they have to you know come up with their own substantive arguments and respond to you know, the actual law that, you know, Senny's citing about this, um, which is a much, much uh, taller order. Always interesting when baseball and law slash government are intertwined. Of course, in Major League Baseball has an antitrust exemption where Major League Baseball sort of gets free reign of who's allowed to operate a team. And of course, the congressional inquiries into steroids in baseball led to the Mitchell Report. And moving on to the judicial branch, it would be interesting to see what the outcome of this is. It's, we still are months away and from any sort of decision, but it's going to be monumental because there are looming team cuts. There are looming player releases. Jobs are going to be lost. There, some of these teams are not deemed affordable to the major league clubs. And now that they are under the jurisdiction, these minor league teams are under the jurisdiction of major league clubs as rather than independent. It's going to be a real shakeup. And of course, the pandemic exacerbated that. Things may be moving on a fast track than we possibly anticipated. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll I'll joke about this from time to time, but I feel like this past summer in which there were no minor league baseball games whatsoever is kind of like the dream scenario for for for, for MLB. Um, you know, they probably were not expected to get that that lucky because I right think, handed yeah, to them, right? Because like from a very more perspective, I do think that you know that's you know they've they they viewed that as a stroke of luck. So. We'll see how this shakes out. There are talks of, you know, using the new partnerships with the Atlantic League and other independent leagues to make sure baseball stays in these markets. Uh, the Appalachian League is uh, 
in talks to become a collegiate wood bat summer league. Uh, my take is I will believe it when I see it. I don't think that Major League Baseball is the type of uh, the type of uh, organization that would be jumping through hoops uh, to. To, to keep baseball in these communities out of the goodness of their own heart. I think they're chasing the dollars and they would be, you know, just as happy to see leagues shut down and parks close up um, and, and baseball leave these communities. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think they give a shit, to be quite honest. Every time I speak to you, I get smarter. Now, Sam, before we sign off... You don't, you know, you, you, you don't get smarter. You just get more cynical. There is a difference. Yeah, <laughs> I guess they're intertwined. Any final thoughts before we sign off for this week? None that I can think of. I, I, I think one thing just to, to keep in mind uh, is kind of a general rhetorical question I'm throwing out there. I'm curious what this offseason is going to look like in terms of managerial turnover, because obviously, you know, Boston's getting rid of Renicky, which I didn't think uh, came soon enough, to be honest. Uh, you had um, uh, Ron Gardenhire retiring in Detroit. They're going to conduct a full search in the offseason. But it'll be really curious to see you know, if there are any other decisions made after the, after the postseason ends. If teams are placing a lot of weight on the shortened season, if they're treating it as a harbinger of, of things to come in their franchise, if they're just giving people mulligans. It seemed like the latter was the case with Tori Lavolo in Arizona. But we're looking at an offseason unlike any other Major League Baseball history. And so, you know, there's going to be a lot of interesting wrinkles I anticipate uh, for us to talk about in the coming months. And this is across nearly every sport. Now that the NHL is in the offseason, the NBA will be in the offseason very soon. There have been a lot of guys who have been fired and they've said to hell with these results in the bubble. You you were going to go. And this was inevitable. And even in the NFL, in a very strange season, it's hard to be so authoritative. But Bill O'Brien was just recently let go. Granted, that was probably four games too late. And again, why are they firing him after week four if they're not going to ride this out? And now they need two jobs. They need a head coach and a general manager. But anyway, 60 games is not really indicative enough of a sample. But this is what we have. If these changes were coming, perhaps they were going to be happening after 162-game season anyway. But you're right. There's, I, feel, I have a feeling there's going to be some turnover that is less so on the less shocking side. Guys who are... There's not going to be as many... Oh my God, they let him go after this huge underperformance. It's going to be mostly inevitable. And to that point, you think the Red Sox are getting Alex Cora again? Or where is their search going to go? I haven't looked into it. I think as someone who is very pro Cora, I think deep in my heart of hearts, I'd like to see it, but I don't know how you can bring the same guy back after after going through that. I saw that Cora and AJ Hinch were being interviewed thoroughly by Detroit, so that's going to be interesting to see. Sam, thank you so much for the time. Once again, this was On the Farm. We will see you soon.